history is full of unsung heroes. Um, the name Thomas Clarkson, if I say Clarkson, you probably think of Jeremy Clarkson, uh, but there's a guy called uh, Thomas Clarkson, and it probably means nothing to you. Um, but if I say the name William Wilberforce, then lots of you will know um, that he played a massive part in seeing the um, abolishment of abolition? Abol yeah, I just made up a new word. Abolition of slavery. Um, but the truth is that this guy that we don't really know about, Thomas Clarkson, was one of the main instigators in this cause. Um, he actually used to go onto the slave ships and gather first-hand evidence of just the appalling conditions. Um, and he, brought, he was the one that brought that to Wilberforce, who was a politician, I believe, um, who then supported the cause. Um, maybe some of you in the room enjoy hill climbing. Um, if, yeah, we've got a few hill climbers. <laughs> You'd think we would in the Highlands. Um, and so maybe the names Edmund Hillary or John Hunt, you might, might ring a bell. Two of the first people to reach the summit of Mount Everest. That was back in 1953. Um, but there was also another hero with them on this expedition, um, which we probably haven't heard of. His name was Tenzing Norgay, an interesting one. And he was a local Sherpa. So Sir Hillary and Sir Hunt um, were knighted for their expedition, um, but Norgay only received a medal. However, I do wonder how far would they have got? Uh, how high would they have climbed without his expertise in uh, how to climb a mountain, a massive mountain? Um, with, them, with him sort of leading the way, would they have got as far? Um, without uh, Thomas Clarkson bringing this evidence to Wilberforce, would uh, Slavery have been tolerated for longer in this country. So history is full of unsung heroes, um, people like these who were willing to work behind the scenes. And um, these heroes are much more interested in breaking new ground than being in the limelight themselves. They're looking to make some kind of positive uh, mark on the world in their time. Um, and they're wanting uh, to see the good of many, not the glory of just a few people. Um, then they're probably not seeking recognition, and uh, if we called them a hero, they'd probably cringe at being called uh, a hero. And maybe you've noticed that the Bible is also full of these kinds of heroes. Um, would Moses have got as far as he got um, without Aaron by his side um, as his brother, as his spokesperson uh, before the Pharaoh? Or Paul without Barnabas uh, to vouch for him? when the disciples were questioning uh, how genuine his conversion was. Yet we know a lot more about Moses and Paul than we do about Aaron and Barnabas. And the same is also true for King David and his best friend Jonathan, who is uh, the hero that I want us to look at this morning, this unsung hero, Jonathan. Um, so their story, the, the friendship between uh, David and Jonathan, um, is we, we find out, when we look into the story, we find out what it looks like to uh, be really, really good, lifelong friends. Their story is one of brotherly love, of loyalty, and of humility. In fact, uh, Jonathan's humility is probably the main reason that I'm kind of highlighting him as a hero of the faith. His uh, humility is particularly outstanding. So what is humility? The uh, definition in the Cambridge Dictionary says it's the feeling or the attitude that you 
have no special importance that makes you better than anybody else. And C.S. Lewis says that uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking about yourself less. I like that. Uh, The Bible also has a lot to say about humility. Here's a few verses uh, from the Bible. With humility comes wisdom. Seek humility. In humility, value others above yourselves. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So this is something uh, that we are to wear. It's something that we're to seek. Um, It's something that is to be really deeply ingrained in who we are as God's people, this virtue of humility. So anyway, before we look into these two friends, David and Jonathan, um, we'll just add a little bit of context to the story, just in case we don't we need to refresh our memory. Um, so Moses had led the Israelites back to Canaan, which is the land that was promised them by God. But when they get there, the land has now been occupied. Then Moses passes away and Joshua takes over as the leader. And with God's help, the Israelites begin to conquer the land, taking it back one city at a time. So now they're beginning to settle into the promised land um, and they've renamed it Israel. But unfortunately, it's not a united country. It's divided into 12 tribes, and there's no leader to unite them all together. So the people begin to cry out to God for a king. They want a king, just like the other nations have kings. Um, They want a king to rule over them. And God answers their desperate prayers. He chooses a man called Saul, and the prophet Samuel anoints him as the first king of Israel. So on paper, we look at Saul, and he sounds like the perfect candidate, I like what the Bible says. It literally says he was tall and handsome. <laughs> it literally says that. He's tall and handsome. He's really good looking. I don't know why. It's like they add that in. Like <laughs> that's, that's essential, apparently, in a king. Um, and also, uh, he had a really good family background. Um, so we'd kind of think, okay, problem solved. They've got their king. This is great. He sounds like a really good leader. Um, but it doesn't quite go like that. Um, it turned out that his heart was in a really bad condition. And by that, I mean not anything physically wrong with his heart as such, but that um, he had some major character flaws. Um, He was really reluctant to seek God's will, so he didn't often go to God to find out, you know, for his advice. And when God did tell him what to do, he ignored it and was disobedient. And then, as the story progresses, we see he's got some really uh, big issues with pride and anger and jealousy. So when this young shepherd boy defeats this massive 10-foot warrior uh, from the Philistine army, Saul, at first he takes David under his wing, um, but soon David is becoming this successful military leader, and the people are loving David, um, and they're admiring him, and King Saul is just filled with this murderous hatred for David who has to flee in fear of his life. And so that's where we're kind of going to pick up the story. Um, Jonathan is the son of this king, um, and he's David's best friend. From the very moment that they first meet, just after Goliath's uh, killed. Um, And we're going to read from 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 23. I'll give you a minute to find that. And it's going to be verse 14 to 18. It's not a long passage, just a short passage. Um, There is loads about David and Jonathan's uh, relationship, and it's kind of comes in bits, of, bits and pieces through 1 Samuel, um, but 
um, we're just going to focus on this little encounter that they have when David is on the run. So 1 Samuel 23 from verse 14. So David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. Um, and that's, that's all we're going to read for now. Um, so the first thing I want to kind of look at is, you know, what made this friendship between uh, David and Jonathan so special? It's, it's, it's often highlighted as one of the uh, best friendships um, in the Bible. Um, so firstly, their hearts were beating to the same drum. The first time they meet, David has just killed Goliath, and he's brought before King Saul. And in 1 Samuel 18, earlier on, it says that after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as, his, as himself. And this phrase, became one in spirit, um, I looked into a little bit, and it translates as this, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Last time I spoke, I was speaking about knitting. <laughs> I'm speaking about knitting again. Um, two souls being knit together is the image that, that it brings when you look at the biblical language. Um, so in other words, from that moment on, their two lives were bound together. Um, they immediately became close-knit friends, and they were inseparable. They felt the same emotions, they desired the same things, and their hearts were beating to the same drum. Now, if we met somebody new today and we had this same kind of experience, we probably wouldn't say that our soul was knit to them and that we were one in spirit. Um, we'd probably say something along these lines. They're my kind of person. We just get each other. Um, the truth is that we all need friends like this in our lives, and I hope you can think of at least one. I like to call, um, call them a brother from another mother <laughs> or a sister from another mister. They just feel like there's that connection, that deep connection. You just kind of get each other. When um, Jonathan dies, David actually calls him that, his brother, and expresses how um, his friendship meant more to him than any of the romantic relationships that he'd had. And uh, David had had a few uh, in his time. Um, and having a friend as close as this is, is really, really good for us. Um, we're built for it. In fact, we're built for friendship. Uh, Proverbs 27 verse 9 says that a sweet friendship refreshes the soul. And that's so true, and it was definitely true in uh, David and Jonathan's case. So what was at the heart of this affinity that they had with each other? And the answer is their hearts. Their hearts were in the same place. Their hearts were after the same God. They both recognized the, the power and the authority of the Lord. And they didn't just speak about it. They actually lived it out. So earlier on, uh, we see a little bit, glimpse of, of Jonathan's character. Um, he's approaching this outpost of Philistine soldiers, and this is in chapter 14, with just one man by his side, his armor bearer, just the two of them. And Jonathan declares that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And these faith-filled words are spoken out of this overflow of his heart, which is full of faith. 
Um, but Jonathan isn't all talk. Um, he also um, acts, on, uh, acts in faith, acts on these words, and he believes that numbers don't mean anything when God is on your side. So these two men, they step out in front of a group of mighty Philistines, and a miracle takes place. They defeat 20 soldiers, and then this massive panic breaks out in the Philistine army. They, they're totally confused about what's going on, and they start turning on each other and killing one another. Um, and then this great victory is won for the Israelites. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, this is what I love, they hadn't even been sent there. <laughs> they hadn't even been sent into a battle. They'd actually crept away from the rest of the army when no one was looking. Um, yet Jonathan sees um, this opportunity for, for the Lord to move. Um, he, he, because he's pursuing the heart of God, he sees a glimpse of what God wants to do, and he does it. Um, if we then flick forward a few chapters, a very similar thing happens with young David, and this is chapter 17, a very familiar story uh, to lots of us. Um, you know, he was only sent into the battlefield to deliver a food parcel for his older brothers, um, yet David, this young shepherd boy who's usually at home just tending the sheep, is soon echoing very similar words, full of faith like Jonathan, face to face with this like I say, I think he's about three meters high or something like that, uh, towering Goliath. This is the cry of his heart, that the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. He speaks these words in faith, and then he acts in faith, and against all the odds, this uh, mighty Philistine warrior comes crashing to the ground. So both David and Jonathan were men after the heart of God. God himself says those words about David, that he's a man after my own heart. And I love that. I love that phrase. When Samuel anoints uh, David as the future king, who's cho been chosen by God to take Saul's place, um, God says this, Do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I just love that. I love that. God is looking at our hearts. And he's still looking for men and women uh, like these, people who are in headlong pursuit of what is on God's heart. And if we're going to be a people who declare, like David and Jonathan, that nothing is impossible for God, um, who have not just words of faith, but acts of, that we act in faith, and we see miraculous victories um, despite the odds being stacked against us, and let's face it, they kind of are, <laughs> um, then we need to allow uh, God's heart to shape our hearts. Does our heart beat in rhythm with the Lord's? Are his desires our desires? Are his emotions our emotions? And uh, when we're chasing after the heart of God, like David and Jonathan, um, as friends, as brothers and sisters, um, as followers of Jesus, our lives then become knit together. And um, I know I'm not the only one that's eager to see a church family united like that. We were singing, the first song we sang was we're about being one tribe. Um, and Thomas last week was, mentioned it when we looked at Acts uh, chapter 4, I think it was. Um, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And, and David and Jonathan were like this. They were one in heart and mind. So uh, it's really important um, that we remember that we need each other. Some of our very best friends should be in this room. And maybe if that's not the case for you, um, I'll 
very quickly suggest a few things. So maybe head along to a small group. There's about five, I think, running through the week, different times, different days. Head along to a small group. Have that weekly uh, time to just meet people, hang out, share, get to know people. It's really, really good. Invite someone from this uh, room over for lunch or go and watch some sport or go to the cinema, whatever you enjoy doing. Take someone along with you and get to know them. Come along to the men's and ladies' socials. Pay attention maybe to who's sitting alone uh, during the connect time. Um, or if you've noticed maybe someone hasn't been around for a while and you have their number, just send them a text, give them a call, check in on them, see, you know, ask them how they're doing, is everything okay? Above all else, find those two or three people uh, whose hearts are in sync with your own. Um, you know, just hang out together, laugh together, uh, pray together, be accountable, listen to one another, protect those kind of friendships, invest in them. And I just want to make something clear as I, as I say all of that, that I'm not talking about cliquey church, where we all hang out in our own little groups and nobody gets, <laughs> nobody mixes and nobody's allowed in. I don't mean that at all. That's so far from what God's heart is for his church. But we, unfortunately, it's not possible to have really close friendships with everybody. That would be nice. <laughs> Um, and a lot of shallow friendships, they just don't cut it. Um, and we learn this from, from the relationship between David and Jonathan. It's, it's really clear that we all need one or two or three really close friends with, where we connect with them on a deeper level. And where, as we do that, as we invest in friendship, as we, our souls will be binded together, um, as we love each other above ourselves, um, then it's like our hearts are beating to the same drum. I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, <laughs> one of my uh, main, main, major regrets in my life. So when I was uh, 10, I, I started taking violin lessons. And at first I was okay, I, made, I did make progress, um, but my teacher was really, really awful, like so awful. Um, he was a really good violinist, but he absolutely could not teach. Um, and he definitely couldn't teach kids. I, I don't mean, I, I, I really shouldn't say this, but he was so dull. Like, as, <laughs> I really shouldn't, but he was. Um, he was obsessed with classical music. He, was, he spent more of the lessons showing off his own abilities than actually trying to do anything with mine. Anyway, but it should be fun, shouldn't it? It should be fun to learn an instrument, um, but it just wasn't. And um, my dream was to play in a Cayley band one day. <laughs> um, but he just made this feel like it was never going to happen. Um, and one day I just gave up. I, just, I was so frustrated with practicing music that I didn't even like, and I just threw my, my violin on the bedroom floor. I went downstairs and I told my parents, that's it, I'm not having lessons anymore, I'm fed up. So I gave it up, I think I was about 13, 14 at that point. Um, I gave it up, and up until just a few weeks ago, I have never picked up the violin again, um, but I uh, treated myself with some Christmas money to a new violin and I started practicing, and I'm up to, I've mastered Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, which I'm so, I'm so exactly, I'm like, <laughs> which, is, which is more fun to play than the stuff I was playing back then. Um, and yeah, anyway, my dream is to be in Hootenannies, like, <laughs> but we never know. I'll be 80 by the time that's happening. <laughs> anyway, why am I talking about um, violins? Um, and it's because um, despite um, Jonathan being the son of the king, and um, the commentaries, th uh, commentators, Bible co commentators think that Jonathan was actually at least ten, ten years older um, than David. 
So despite that, um, Jonathan was willing to take second place, to play second fiddle. Um, and this expression, playing second fiddle, is the opposite of blowing your own trumpet. Um, it means that you're viewed or you're treated as less important than someone else. And obviously this, ha this came from the world of music, this phrase. So you have your uh, lead or first violin, who is the most kind of um, high-profile member of the orchestra. And then you have the other violinists, um, who are kind they're called second fiddles, and they are considered to be less important. So from, from the uh, verses that we read, um, I'll just repeat the words that Jonathan says to David. He says, you shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Um, so as the son of the king, you know, Jonathan should, was actually next in, in line to the throne, yet he recognizes that God has called David to rule instead of Saul, and therefore instead of himself. And so he actually takes this so the back seat, he, he takes a step back so that his best friend um, can take his place, which is really quite remarkable. And I, I wonder when he first realized that, um, you know, his best friend, David, who he actually grew up in a field surrounded by sheep, um, would one day rule over him as his king. And there's a suggestion that it was right at the very beginning when they first met where Jonathan takes off his robes and he gives them to David with his tunic, his sword, his bow and his belt. Um, I, I think Jonathan saw something in David that day and it made him immediately willing to step aside and to take step, second place. It's genuine humility and it's a thing of great beauty. There's a warmth and a depth to our words and our actions when they come from this place, from a place of humility. So maybe we might turn our noses up at being uh, considered a se playing second fiddle. Um, but the truth is that the sound of the orchestra is really made much richer by the presence of those second violins. The they have this supportive role that's absolutely essential because the beautiful harmonies that they play frame the melody of the first violins. And I found this quote from a, a lead violinist, so she's actually first violin, um, in her orchestra. Her name's Jennifer Jones. I just googled it, but I just loved what she wrote, which was um, just really gives, paints a picture of uh, how she views uh, what it means to play second fiddle. And I won't read all of it, um, but I'll pick out a couple of bits. So, the second violins play a supportive role harmonically and rhythmically to the first violins, which often play the melody and the highest line of the string section. Um, Members of both sections audition with mainly the same repertoire. They have to maintain a high level of musicianship. And she says that if the truth be known, a lot of what's required of the second violins is difficult because of the intricate rhythms that they have to play, syncopated rhythms and all this. And then she says, all first violinists appreciate the value and hard work of the second violins because while the second violins concentrate on their own difficulties, they constantly rely on the musical support of the second violins. They constantly rely on the second violins. God prompts David to move from first place to second place, and Jonathan does not resist or complain. In fact, in humility, he makes room for David, and he does absolutely everything that he can to show commitment and dedication to this essential role um, of supporting his friend through a really, really difficult part of his life. So are we showing the same level of commitment 
in those relationships where God has called us to take second place. Um, in our marriages, does our spouse have our relentless support? What about uh, those who are older than us, our parents, our grandparents, our aunties and uncles? Um, have we offered them our help and assistance? Our boss, are we encouraging our boss on a regular basis? Um, Jonathan says to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. And maybe there's somebody in our life who needs to hear those words from us today. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. And so all Christians, we are, we're called to play the part of second fiddle, take second place, and to place more value and importance on each other than on ourselves. And how do we know that this is the case? Because Jesus told us and because he showed us. I love it when um, in John chapter 13, uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. That is an act of great humility. Um, and then he tells us to go and do the same, to roll up our sleeves and bless the socks off of everybody that we meet, even if it's uncomfortable and even if it's, the thought of it is unpleasant. So if we were to become like Jonathan and pursue the heart of God, invest in meaningful relationships and adopt a posture of humility, um, it does come with a sacrifice. Anything of real value comes with a price tag, doesn't it? And in Jonathan's case, living like this um, almost cost him his life. His, his, if his own father, Saul, attempts to kill him at one point because of his friendship with David. And Jonathan escapes, but only just. Um, in the end, Jonathan dies um, on a battlefield along with his uh, father, King Saul. And this allows David to take his place as the new king. Uh, but one thing is, is certain, that without Jonathan's friendship and support, David would have absolutely never made it there. Um, the son of the king lays down his own life to save the life of a friend. So that this shepherd boy who has absolutely no claim whatsoever to the throne could wear the royal crown. Which sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> sounds a lot like what Jesus did for us. Jesus says that in um, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then four chapters later... He lays down his life for his friends, for you, for me, for his disciples, for his closest friends. And it's only because of his friendship and his humility and his sacrifice that we have the right uh, to the throne, to be called uh, heirs to the throne. And so um, as we stand, as we reflect on what God's been saying to us this morning and everything that he's been doing um, and saying to us through his word... Um, let's just reflect on that, on, how, on what Jesus has done for us. Um, I'll maybe just read this, this one uh, section in Philippians 2. Let's stand, actually, and I'll read, I'll read this as we stand. So Philippians chapter 2, it says, If you've got anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends, don't push your way to the front, don't sweet-talk your way to the top, put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Um, don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage, forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And I just, I just love that, that's what, that's what we're called uh, to be like as church family.
to live in agreement with each other, to be uh, deep-spirited friends with one another, to be willing to step aside so that others um, can step up and be in first place and to serve one another. And so let's pray together, and, and maybe the band could come up and we'll, we'll sing to close.